It's Muppeturgy with a knockout episode about the Sylvester Stallone episode of The Muppet Show! Yay! Hey everyone, welcome back. We're so glad you're here. I'm David Levy, here today with me are... Adam Grossworth. Christy Bauer. And Michal Richardson. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. Uh, we have an addition this week, uh, just some dramaturgical detail, because that's what we do here. Uh, I, I think I've mentioned before that some weeks I make the gifts for the website uh, before we record, and some weeks I don't have time. And I really need to make sure that I make time to do it before we record, because this is the second week in a row that I've noticed something after we've recorded especially with an episode that I'm frankly not all that into, uh, I catch a lot more visual details when I'm looking at them frame by frame. So in the Elke Zomar episode, Fred, the whatnot in the dressing room who is eating the wardrobe, uh, is in fact a construction worker. Um, he is very clearly dressed as a construction worker, a detail that none of us caught, which suggests that he is there to eat the wardrobe as a job. And, you know, that's the kind of detail that we do here. So thought I would share. <laughs> Fred not name, Fred job. we also have a fun music edition we got a message from listener giovanni biani who wrote in to tell us that the song brazil which we discussed in the spike milligan episode is apparently a new year's eve staple in italy he says and i quote the song is one of the mainstays of every embarrassing new year's eve party often devolving into a drunken conga line Delightful. Delightful. And we are, in fact, recording this on New Year's Eve, so you're not hearing it until February. But Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) Happy President's Day. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Now we're off to a possibly decent start. Here is a Muppet News flash. So we're here this week to discuss uh, Season 3, Episode 20 of The Muppet Show, produced the week of January 9th, 1979, and aired in New York on February 26th, 1979. It had an even faster turnaround in the UK. According to Muppet Wiki, it aired on February 9th. Uh, We do know that the air dates for the US on Muppet Wiki are not correct, so uh, I have no good way to fact check the UK dates, but that's what it says. Rocky II was released on June 15th, so I I don't know why they rushed this out. Uh, possibly they just felt like it, and it was a coincidence. It was also number 20 in the air order, as well as the production order uh, airing between Harry Belafonte and Leslie Ann Warren. As we discussed on the Leslie Ann Warren episode, there was a long break after this episode in the air dates in New York that we have not been able to figure out the reason for. Um, but after this episode, uh, Leslie Ann Warren aired in May. So there you go. In the news, a lot of the usual uh, on the front page of the New York Times, Middle East peace talks and the like. Uh, Iran and the Soviet Union are meeting. I'm sure nothing terrible will come out of that. Jimmy Carter's brother said something anti-Semitic. I'm sure nothing terrible will come out of that. And the Vietnam War is apparently still going on, just with China involved instead of the U.S. That's actually a thing I sort of never thought about and definitely didn't learn about in school. Uh, The Paris Opera is on the front page, uh, which I just found strange, uh, culturally speaking. Uh, There were no phantoms involved, just some kind of big premiere. The Census Bureau says that the world population will reach 6.35 billion in the year 2000. Uh, I looked it up. It was actually 6.11, so pretty close. The 
Seagram building is for sale, which was uh, sort of a huge and moderately scandalous story in New York. Like not scandalous, but you know, the sort of iconic uh, landmark building uh, being sold and no longer being the Seagram building was a big deal. Uh, and to turn around bright eyes. There is, there will be a total eclipse of the sun today. <laughs> total eclipse of the sun. Yeah. So that, <laughs> uh, this was followed directly in the New York times by an article about the flat earth society, uh, which does not believe that the total eclipse of the sun is real, or at least does not believe it is caused by what it is scientifically caused by in case you thought that both sidesing was a new phenomenon in our nation's <laughs> prominent newspapers. <sighs> it's wild. <laughs> God damn it. New York times. On the Cashbox pop charts, the number one song is Once Again or Before Daya Think I'm Sexy. Uh, number two is Fire by the Pointer Sisters. Number three is I Will Survive. And number four is A Little More Love by Olivia Newton-John. Just, you know, cherry picking some favorites. Um, and just scanning down the chart, I was really struck this week by the mix of disco, rock, light or moist FM and songs that I think of as 80s, even though we're not yet in the 80s. It was just a, a wild time on the pop charts. And the number one album is Spirits Having Flown by the Bee Gees, which I don't think uh, I've at least had to say out loud before on the podcast. That is a title. You know, it's funny thinking about songs that feel like 80s songs that are from the 70s. That's my reaction to hearing that Rocky Two came out in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Rocky Three. I mean, we'll talk about this. When we talk about Stone. Like Rocky Three is like the big '80s '80s one, with- right? And that I remember from when I was a little kid. Like I was old enough to be part of the hype and and uh, the Queen song um, "Everyone Bites the Dust." I think was I don't know featured in the film, even if it's not from the film, or at least I connected to that moment and was sort of everywhere. Uh, Rocky Three in the '80s had um, both "Eye of the Tiger" and uh, "Living in America" in it. And like Rocky, Th- Eye of the Tiger is like indelibly associated with Rocky, even though it took three movies to get there. Yeah. Okay. I'm not imagining that another one bites the dust is in Rocky Three, although it is from earlier. Right. I would just like to say, "Spirits Having Flown" is an excellent PG's album. Oh yeah, no doubt. I just I, I, I'd never it's seen a, the title it's a terrible before. Title. Yeah. 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 It'd be it's a terrible title. It's just a very seventies title. Be a better name for a cocktail. I mean. It, that's the one that's got tragedy and too much oh. heaven and love you inside and out. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. <laughs> oh, and yes, a great name for a cocktail. We should come up with that recipe. Uh, moving on on television. Uh, there's an ad in the New York Times for an afternoon children's show, the Soupy Sales Show, and his madcap characters, White Fang, Black Tooth, and Pookie. And if you think that's terrifying, you should see the picture. It will be on our webpage. <laughs> I don't want to. Uh, it's, uh, it's, I mean, nothing against soupy sales, but oh my God. <laughs> In the evening on CBS, the Channel 2 News at 6 and 11, this man is gay and tired of hiding it. Pause. Everyone knows there. Mm- if you just said this man is gay and tired, that could describe <laughs> most of my friends. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and this is where I wish we had like higher quality scans of the New York Times because honestly, I would make it my social media profile picture. <laughs> it looks nothing like me, but like that photo with this man is gay and tired. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I won't read the copy. It's about um, gay teachers in the public school system, you know, who are who are closeted for professional reasons, but uh, are now starting to come out um, because they're 
you know, tired of being denied their rights and having to be in the closet. And it's like one of those things where it's like you expect the copy to be really terrible because it's from 1979 and it's actually fine. There's nothing funny about it, except the picture is a little bit funny. <laughs> and again, I wish it were clearer. It will be on our webpage, obviously. Um, in primetime on CBS, we have two big premieres. A show called Billy, about a 19-year-old played by Steve Gutenberg, with Walter Mitty flights of fancy who finds himself constantly caught between his fantasies and the hard realities of life. This lasted seven episodes. <laughs> Steve Gutenberg is another one of those things that I associate with the 80s, and I'm shocked to find out that he was a thing in the 70s. Well, he was 19, or at least playing 19. So that makes sense that by you know 1985 or so, he was in his 20s, <laughs> or possibly 30. So there you go. Flatbush, five young Brooklynites known as the Fungos, concoct a mad scheme to recover their cherished auto, the Fungomobile. I found this, that exact this is a series. This is a series. This lasted three episodes. Okay, barely so it was barely a series. Um, I mean, that's the that's the description of the of the pilot, the 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 plot description. But I found that exact phrasing on at least three different websites, uh, including that's the that's the description in the New York Times um, listing. Uh, on paper so like that's all i got i did not dive any deeper um good luck (laughs) good luck to us all i wish Uh, my high school flatbush years had included a fungo mobile i mean (laughs) would have been more fun is that like a giant mushroom with wheels i I don't probably i want to say it's like fun and go as opposed to fun gus but i i it's, it's all i got uh i watched a lot of stuff this week for the show the so this was not on the list uh it starred adrian's med and guested James Cromwell, a person who I believe was never young. <laughs> That'll do, Carr. That'll do. <laughs> I mean, I love James Cromwell. Like, I will watch him in anything except uh, Flatbush. But I do not believe <laughs> that he was ever a young person. But he must have been, because it was 45 years ago. Anyway, that was followed by MASH, WKRP, and Lou Grant, our regular lineup. Uh, on ABC, Savage One and How the West Was Won, our regular lineup. On NBC, uh, opposite The Muppet Show, we had In Search of Noah's Flood. I watched it. It's on YouTube. We'll put a link on the website. Well, uh, why is that the thing you watch? Because <laughs> In Search of is fun. All right. I also watched two Sylvester Stallone movies. Did they find the Ark? They didn't. But I mean, this, so this is like this is like what In Search of is best at, where they're actually like using like real science to to look for a thing. You know, where they're like there probably was a flood. Like in the Ice Age, that you know there there are things that these myths are maybe based on that mm-hmm. are based in scientific truth, and so like people have looked on Mount Ararat for evidence of the Ark or a flood, and did they find it? Nah, probably not. But you know, like this is like this is the thing that the show actually did really well. Um, I don't know. It's no animal ESP. It's no animal ESP, <laughs> which I have not yet watched, but I really need to. Um, and you know, then they talk to these like creationist scientists who are like trying to use science to, to like actively prove the Bible who are like sort of wackadoo, you know, like it's, it's pretty, it's pretty decent as, as in search of goes and, uh, and not, not terribly implausible, like science wise. Um, then we had a little house on the prairie. Mary's husband falls into a deep depression when he learns there is a possibility of Mary regaining her sight. This is what I actually (laughs) remember. (laughs) She she might be able to to look upon her husband again, and he's terrified. Well, no, because he's. I mean, I didn't watch it, but I, my recollection is that because he is blind, um, and that's actually like what brought them together. They're they're both they're both uh, unable oh, to see, and so he is oh. he is worried that 
Uh, I retract she, my snark. I'm sorry. Yeah, if she regains her sight, uh, and I believe he is blind from birth, and she is blind due to an illness. Uh, so if she is he ugly, is sight, that what the problem is? No, I think he's just worried that if if she regains her sight, then she won't want to be with him anymore because that's like the thing because he's ugly. Together. And then uh, <laughs> I I I think he was like a, a pretty early awakening for many of us who watched that show as a child. So no, I don't think he. Is. I, I I have no memory of the later years of this show. So. Yeah. Um, he didn't like growing out his hair and he didn't tell her or he yeah. got a tattoo. Oh, an early prairie tattoo. They were rough. <laughs> uh, we had another premiere, uh, Mrs. Columbo, obviously a spinoff of Columbo. This ran for five episodes this season and another seven in the fall. Mrs. Columbo was played by Kate Mulgrew. And uh, the guest star on this episode, or a guest star on this episode, was Renee Aubergenois. So some Star Trek connections there. And later that night on PBS, a rerun of Nova, The Invisible Flame, The Potential of Hydrogen as a Zero Pollution Fuel, which caught my (laughs) eye because how's that working out? (laughs) Here's a quick 70s fun fact for you. Do you know who directed the first episode of Columbo? Sylvester Stallone. Uh, No, Uh, Steven Spielberg. Huh. Uh, Uh, I actually did know that, I think, but I had to go for the joke. I know you tell us that Mrs. Columbo is played by Kate Mulgrew, but in my mind, it's just Peter Falk in a wig. (laughs) (laughs) Which would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. That'd be fun. And it's going to be a wonderful show tonight because our special guest is a writer, director, and the talented star of that popular film, Rocky, Mr. Sylvester Stallone! Sylvester Stallone, actor, writer, director, producer, and action movie icon of the 1980s. Michael Sylvester Gaudenzio Stallone was born in New York in 1946 to Frank Stallone, a hairdresser and beautician, and Jackie Stallone, an astrologer-slash-dancer-slash-women's-wrestling promoter. Wow. I'm not going to allow myself the tangent of describing his mother's life, but do me a favor, go read up on her. She was a real character. When Jackie gave birth to little Michael, there were complications during labor that led to some nerve damage, which is how he got his trademark look and sound. He went to Miami for college to study drama, but he dropped out to pursue his career. He would much later in life be granted a BFA from the school in recognition of his accomplishments. In 1970, he started going by the name Sylvester instead of Mike, as his career got off to a slow start with some New York stage roles, minor film work, and at least one softcore porno. His first minor breakthrough came with a role in the 1974 film The Lords of Flatbush, for which he also received his first writing credit, contributing additional dialogue to the script. The film enabled him to move from New York to California. After inspiration struck in 1975, he completed the script to Rocky in three days and began shopping it around. He was so committed to starring in his own film that he turned down offers for it to be made with a big star and a big budget in order to get it made with himself. The gamble paid off, and Rocky was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Actor and Best Original Screenplay for Stallone. It won three, including Best Picture. He also began directing, first with 1978's Paradise Alley, which is the film that came out most recently when this Muppet Show episode aired, followed soon by Rocky II, which was a runaway hit. So as we're seeing him on The Muppet Show, Stallone is one of Hollywood's golden boys, still on an upward trajectory. He would go on to write all the Rocky sequels and direct most of them, too, write and star in the successful Rambo series, write and direct Staying Alive, the terrible sequel to Saturday Night Fever, and become one of the most successful and iconic action stars of the 1980s, rivaling Arnold Schwarzenegger for favorite Hollywood bodybuilder celebrity, because apparently that's a category. His career has had more and less successful periods, but he's persevered. 
In more recent years, creating and starring in the Expendables film series, appearing in the Rocky spinoff Creed and writing its sequel, and getting his piece of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. His Wikipedia has a long list of legal troubles he's faced, including a series of sexual assault allegations that didn't stick, two charges of possessing a controlled substance that did, and some intra-family drama where his relatives accused him of abusive behaviors and other relatives defended him from it. Unrelated, I want to add him to the list of Muppet Show guest stars who claim not to be a Republican despite a long history of supporting Republican politicians. Uh, so that's all I have to say about Sylvester Stallone. Does anyone have Sylvester Stallone memories they'd care to share? I would like to uh, put in a, a plea for our listeners to, if you've never seen the movie Staying Alive, watch it today. Seconded. <laughs> it is one of the wildest pieces of filmmaking I've ever seen. It is a, it is a, it's a sequel to Saturday Night Fever, but also not at all. Like it, it basically takes the Tony Monero character and decides that he wants to be a Broadway dancer, but it's written as if it were <laughs> basically written by somebody who's never seen a Broadway show. <laughs> and it's full of songs by, uh, Sylvester Stallone's brother Frank. <laughs> it's wild. It is wild. I've watched it twice uh, since the pandemic started. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a fairly short, but not like that short list of um, Muppet Show guest stars who are still active and present in the culture, which makes sense because it's 45 years old, and you know Stallone is on it. He has a, a, a TV show uh, airing or streaming right now called Tulsa King. Tulsa King. Thank you. Um, maybe it's on Paramount Plus. I don't know. I'm not watching it. I hear it's okay. Um, but, uh, you know, so that's that's a thing. And also, you know, just being the age that I am, like, you know, he was around. I mean, I, I definitely remember seeing Rocky Three in a theater. That was probably the first one that was, like, age appropriate. Um, and I've seen Rocky multiple times and, and the musical adaptation thereof. But, um you know, and like Cliffhanger is is like a a perfect '90s bad action movie. He's just like always been around. Um, I rewatched Rocky for this, and would sort of argue that like it's as much a product of the '70s that like Liberace is in terms of it feeling kind of dated. Except that we have decided that it's good. I mean, it is good. Like I recognize the things about it that make it good, but there's also like a lot about it that is like just screams 1976 or whatever year it was forgive me if i got that wrong just a lot like i won't get into it we're not a rocky podcast but like it it there's a lot about it that just would not be made the same way today but because like he has endured and the franchise has endured uh and it is a very well made movie like it's it's it is it has emerged from the 70s in a different way well what's shocking to me about rocky is how the first film is in no way a film that was built to launch a franchise. And if you only knew Rocky from like Rocky three onwards and then go back and see the first one, it's really hard to understand that these come from the same mind or even the same. Yeah, that's true for sure. I mean, there's a lot of like also just like storytelling and, and character things that are very of its time, but yeah, I mean, it really, it was an indie film. It was this tiny little thing. Uh, it's very rare that um, the podcast sort of overlaps with something that's already on my to watch list. And Creed has been for like since it came out. So I watched Creed. And 
it, I don't really ever want to watch boxing is, is a thing, but like, you know, he's good. Like he's, he's doing his thing. Um, it's not really his movie, obviously, but like, you know, he is, um, it was sort of nice to see him <laughs> in it. I'm rambling, but yeah, Sylvester Stallone seems like a good guy, except for that thing you said about the Republican and the sexual assault. Yeah. <laughs> Possible sexual assault. Though that does explain a lot about the Rocky-Adrian relationship in the first Rocky movie, now to have that color on him as a real person. Oof. My, my favorite thing in the Wikipedia entry about him regarding his politics is that really the only public thing that he said about Trump was that he was a Dickensian character. <laughs> huh. <laughs> well, you know, and that's actually, that's sort of, that's almost worth mentioning. Like, it, he has, like, cultivated this, like, lunkhead character, and, and he does, like, he mumbles, like, he talks like a stupid person, but he's not. Like, he's really smart. Right, yeah. and the mumbling is because of that nerve damage. Like, it's not... It, it's not an affect. It's it's like a yeah. physical disability of sorts. And he's like really easy to parody because of it. But like he is, he's a smart man, which is sort of a part of the appeal. W- one fun fact that I think is, we might as well mention it here as, as well as anywhere is that um, this episode of the Muppet Show was used in Rocky Three, and Jim Henson redubbed the intro of Sylvester Stallone to be an intro of Rocky Balboa, like at, to show how famous Rocky was. And I love that. That is like my favorite Muppet Show trivia so far. Why don't you get me so, Michal, what did you think of the episode? I, I enjoyed it just fine. We talked about this a little bit uh, before we started recording, but I think that all of our impressions of this were colored by the rash of really indefensibly unacceptable episodes that we've had lately. And this one is pretty okay. And, you know, he was a rising superstar. He could have just phoned it in. But, you know, Sylvester Stallone seems like he's having a great time goofing around, sparring with a lion, singing, even though he doesn't seem to be a singer. I enjoyed this episode. It, it was a solid episode of The Muppet Show, which is a relief. Christy, how about you? Yeah, this one's just fun. Uh, nothing in it is particularly offensive, which is a relief. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think Sylvester Stallone really gives it his all. I mean, sometimes his all ain't that much, but, you know, he, he gives it. And, you know, it's just a sweet little half hour television. The, the episode that this reminded me of was the Rudolph Nureyev episode. Because, it, you know, neither of those guys had any business singing on television. <laughs> But they knew it and they leaned into it. And it just, I don't know, it, it makes for a fun time. That's a great comparison, Christy. I, I agree with that. Um, it, it, I would say we're coming from one of sort of bad to mediocre episodes. At, at this point in our timeline, we've we've just uh, listened to our Spike Mulligan episode. <laughs> but the last two we recorded, I would say were like, okay, yeah, uh, not terrible. Um, for me, it's also like a, a memory issue. I, I've talked about, um, you know, having zero memory of some of these episodes, despite owning the DVDs. And I know that I've watched them uh, as an adult. This is one that I, I did remember parts of, and I'll talk about them more when we get there. And I did not remember them particularly fondly. And, and this time around, I actually loved them for some reason. So uh, it, it's a bit of a, of an expectations thing. I think both from the episodes we're coming off of and that, that memory uh, issue. But yeah, I also like it. It's not, there are better episodes. It's not in my top 10 by any means, but I, I really like, I love that he is at this moment at the height of his fame 
And at the height of his fame as like a serious artist coming off of Rocky, not his 80s, 90s, stop or my mom will shoot cliffhanger fame. Um, and he's like, yes, please make me look ridiculous. I will do whatever. And I I love that. Um, I thought this was a super good time. David? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like, it was fine. Uh, this was not a favorite episode. It was not an episode that I had a particularly bad reaction to. Uh, I like how game Sylvester Stallone is that he's willing to do anything that he seems to just be really enjoying singing and dancing and and telling jokes. I I just wish he was a little better at it. So, uh, you know, it's, this is not an episode that I would necessarily pull out to watch again, but it's not one that I regret spending time with. Sylvester Stallone, 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Stallone. Uh, everything okay? Oh, yeah, I'm happy as a clam. Oh, 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 I'm so miserable. My back hurts. I gotta work over till tonight. Well, happy as some clam. <laughs> <laughs> Those were some Muppet clams who may not have vertebrae, but they do have back aches and have to work overtime tomorrow. <laughs> uh, we need to talk about his bathrobe. At least I need to talk about his bathrobe in this scene. Please. <laughs> I just, I want it. It's great. It's like, it's like rainbow striped and it looks very comfortable. And it can be yours for the low, low price of $180. (laughs) What did you find it for? Yeah, I tried to source it and I found something close. It's not exactly the same, but I found something like a British company has something very similar and it's much too expensive uh, for a thing I, I frankly probably will never wear because I don't really wear bathrobes. But uh, uh, do you know anyone who wears bathrobes? Like I've always owned a bathrobe, but I've never quite understood when I'm supposed to put it on. I an acquaintance of mine in like nearly every be real, he is wearing a bathrobe. So yes, I know one person who consistently <laughs> is in a bathrobe <laughs> apparently around his I, apartment. I now own one because one was purchased for me <laughs> when my sister discovered I don't own one, and she couldn't wait for me to enjoy the life of bathrobe wearers and i haven't figured out when i'm supposed to wear it i do own one and i think the only time I, w- I ever put it on is like if i have a house guest and i need to like you know get from the shower to the bedroom <laughs> without being naked <laughs> but other than that like <laughs> yeah that makes sense my spouse yeah. wears one most of the time like he is usually in his bathroom <laughs> you've all learned a lot about me <laughs> <laughs> just like i would i would rather be in like like PJs or gym clothes. I just like find them sort of cumbersome. Yeah. But this one, yeah, I might so wear, but not for, the, not for $200. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you spent $200 on it. That might be the motivation to wear it all the time. It's true. Yeah, like a gym it's, membership. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> anyway, there'll be gifts in on the show page, obviously. Also, there's a couple times he does these like sort of takes to the camera after a gag. And like, you know, David said he's not great at delivering jokes. It's true. But he's got a really good, like, side-eye, like, one-eyebrow-raise situation going on that yeah, I was, yeah. I was uh, impressed by. He does fit in on The Muppet Show, which I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, in Statler and Waldorf's box. Hey, don't you guys ever dust in here? <laughs> Beauregard goes full Amelia Bedelia. He takes a dusty rag, and like Amelia Bedelia, he dusts in there. Oh, is that what's happening? I mean, I thought that the dust was coming off of the 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 box rail. I I assumed that he was adding dust. Ah, 
I, I mean, thought he was like- picking up dust. I mean, I think the I think the, the mechanics of the gag, I think, is that the dust is coming out of the rag. But I, I thought we were meant to believe that that he was dusting properly. I could that, go either way. That dust looked extra funky too. Like I was like, is that anthrax? Like what's happening? <laughs> I mean, it's it, yeah, it's like baby powder, but whatever it is, I don't want it on the puppets. I'm worried. Yeah, for it looked darker than baby. Like usually they use baby powder. It, it definitely looked like brown. Borgard was introduced to us as a janitor, I believe. And then he very quickly sort of evolved into like a stagehand and a carpenter, possibly a scenic painter. <laughs> now he's back to being a janitor. Also, Stan and Waldorf don't actually live at the theater. So it's actually not their job to dust the box. It's his job to dust the box. Well, Beauregard is confused about a lot of things. It's including true. the parameters of his job, apparently. Fair. When Gonzo attempts to play his trumpet, Beautiful Day Monster sneaks up, grabs Gonzo, holds Gonzo close, and trumpets on his behalf, and then gives him this consoling pat on the back. (laughs) Sorry, buddy. It just had to be this way. It's very sweet. I love it. Yeah, Muppet Show backstage! Okay, so as we heard in the intro, there is a shifty new gang loose in the Muppet Theater. Yep, it's a little quartet of Sylvester Stallone groupies, uh, one of whom is performed by Kathy Mellon, who will later become best known for performing Mogi Fraggle. Uh, which notably means that there are two women Muppet performers this week. There are yep. three groupies, but there are two women. <laughs> yeah, I kept trying to figure out, oh, which one is Louise Gold? Because it does sound like there are multiple women. And I got excited that there, <laughs> there was a second woman in the Muppet Theater. <laughs> Hallelujah. Very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh... Uh, uh, listen, girls, uh, you're not allowed backstage during the show. Oh, it's okay. We got passes. Yeah. yeah. Passes? We don't give out passes. I'll say you don't give them out, frog. <laughs> yeah, they cost us a bundle. <laughs> Wait a minute. Who could be selling backstage passes around here? Twenty-eight, twenty-nine bucks. Scooter. Uh, yeah, boss. Uh, Scooter, I want to talk to you. Okay. Uh, right now, I got to go introduce Sylvester Stallone, but I want you to stay right here and don't move. Right. See how valuable those passes are, girls. The frog's gonna let us stay right here so we can see Sylvester up close. So I had to go to the inflation calculator. Uh, mm-hmm. Twenty-nine dollars in nineteen seventy-nine is uh, one fifteen ninety-seven now. And Scooter is thrilled. Wow. So think how yeah. much Taco Bell you could yeah. get. I mean, he's excited about the money. He's excited about seeing Stallone up close. He's excited about a lot of things. Yeah. I, As a viewer, I love that Scooter is running a scam. As a professional, <laughs> come on, dude. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, I'm sure that's not how backstage passes work, even when they work. Well, no. I mean, that's why it's a scam. Like, that's the... Yeah, that's his whole that's the deal. But like, I uh, come on, like I, firing offense. You protect the talent. Well, and Kermit does seem on the verge of firing. It's true. Uh, he is so displeased by the presence of these audience members backstage that he wants to have a serious talk with Scooter. Fortunately for the groupies, Scooter has a plan. And fortunately for Scooter, these groupies really follow through. Scooter, it's time we had a serious talk. Boss, I understand you don't want these groupies backstage. That's true. I understand you're angry with me for letting them in. That's true, too. Well, I wouldn't have if they weren't just so desperate to see you. 
Me? Yeah, uh, where? Oh, where? Uh, girls, 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 you're going to have to leave. Kermit insists upon it. Uh, wait, wait, no. Uh, well, uh, well, leaving isn't what I insist upon exactly. When Scooter says Kermit insists upon it, he does this melodramatic look off into the distance, and it's glorious. I know it's a trope, but you know, Kermit has pulled this exact bit with Scooter's help, <laughs> like on Piggy, on others. You'd think he would see through it, but no. Deception? Yeah. Well, but like, yeah, but this exact like shtick of, you know, the, the reverse psychology with the bad lying. But he has an ego and I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, I wasn't quite expecting that from Kermit. I was a little surprised that it worked, but it worked. Who was that small green man? <laughs> <laughs> Who indeed? Who indeed? Fun little dramaturgical note of sorts. All this is going on, and at the same time, Zelda Rose, who is about to appear in the Gladiator sketch, she's pacing around upstairs and learning her lines. It's really sweet. She's just like looking at a script and thinking about it really hard. Throughout this episode, they do a really good job of connecting what's going on in the background of the backstage with what's either about to happen or has just happened on stage. It's subtle, but I really appreciated it. Yeah, yeah, and that's been a nice. running thing we've been noticing the last few episodes of, you know, just the connective, the the people coming off from a sketch and doing something backstage leading into the scene, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, so Kermit haltingly approves the groupies hanging out backstage. And he says, near my desk. So, you know, immediately in the wings. And then as soon as Kermit wanders off, Scooter gathers up all the groupies to invade the guest star's dressing room. You see, there are a couple of your yeah. fans waiting outside. Who, well, they're not waiting outside. Well, they wanted to. But no, they don't. But, Made a movie about fighting, but I like to uh, work out and keep in shape. (laughs) (laughs) That was just him folding his arms behind his head so you could see his muscles a little bit. He does a little, he does a little, like the bike. Yeah, a little flex. Yeah. Yeah. The groupies freak the fuck out, and Scooter also freaks the fuck out. And (laughs) I just, do we need to think about this? Scooter is the one who takes them to the dressing room, he's the one who asks Stallone to demonstrate some punches. And every time there's a punch, like, Scooter has the exact same reaction as the groupies, maybe more so. And he's the first one to start asking for Sylvester Stallone's autograph. It's adorable. I mean, he's enthusiastic. It's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I found this also adorable because, I mean, and, and maybe this is just because I wasn't alive at this particular moment in time, but I don't really think of Sylvester Stallone as being like a, you know teeny bopper sex symbol like he's more of a like a dude's dude action hero so i don't know i enjoyed it yeah i was also surprised i I wasn't aware that he had that kind of place in the culture maybe the muppet show made it up i don't actually know well it's also before he really became action hero stallone that's really a product of the 80s so maybe this was where he was in the culture in that moment well, and it's, it is kind of having just watched it, like kind of a weird thing about Rocky is there's actually not that much boxing in it. Like it's about a boxer, but, and there's a lot of training in it. 
but like it's it is largely about his relationship with adrian a plot line which i have a lot of problems with but like it's it's this weird like boxing love story and a question mark <laughs> so i i get it i think it makes sense for like where he is at this moment uh, I mentioned up top that I remembered not liking this episode, and this was the thing. I the, the only thing I really remembered was the groupies and finding them incredibly creepy um, in that way that I sometimes find um, particularly humanoid uh, Muppets creepy. And they're not like you know they're not like Gelflings. They're they are um, <laughs> they're they're typical whatnots, but they're you know the way that they're 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 made up and their wigs uh, and they're dressed is. Um, is a little more human than some. And obviously they want to fuck Sylvester Stallone, um, (laughs) which I do find creepy still, but like, I remember being like really put off by it whenever I last watched this, you know, 20 years ago. Um, I don't know. For some reason I found them utterly delightful this time. (laughs) They're very cute. And like, maybe it's like just being steeped in the seventies ness of all of this, the way that we are now for the podcast. Um, their costumes are amazing. There's nothing really special about them, which is why I like them. They're very casual. They're exactly dressed the way these characters would be dressed, only Muppet-sized. And, like, they're perfect. Like, somebody really thought about it. And, like, the little tiny jeans. Like, I just, I don't know, I love it. Yeah, the little side ponytail. That was the thought that I had about, like, oh, yeah, that's that makes sense. Yeah, and, like, they seem to be three different ages. You can't really get a sense of that but just like like the 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 hair on one of them just reads older i don't know i love everything about them in a way that i cannot really defend because they're sort of creepy <laughs> but i i don't know they brought me great joy <laughs> i think it helps that the first thing that we know about them when we meet them is they had they have that dialogue about you know i'll say you don't give out these passes <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> we really felt like they have some personality they're not they're not just screaming groupies they're mostly screaming groupies but they're fun. I also love that Scooter, despite taking advantage of them, is also of them. Like he is thrilled to be able to do the groupie things with the groupie. He is the first one to ask Sylvester Stallone for an autograph. He is the one looking for the excuses to be near him. Uh, you know, given the opportunity, you think that he also would like Sylvester Stallone to touch his face. Mm-hmm. All, all of that is text. That's not even subtext. There's also a moment between uh, Link Hogthrob and Sylvester Stallone, which we can debate about what's text and what's subtext, but we know that <laughs> Link Hogthrob, uh, as Stallone says, you sure treat yourself nice. <laughs> he, he offers all of these different colognes and products and scented talcs uh, just in case. Sylvester needs any help, or Silv, as he calls him. He calls him Silv, which I find so delightfully weird. <laughs> it is. It is delightfully weird. I'm Sly, which I also I actually find weird, but that's the thing people actually called him. Yeah. But Silv, sure. I just really like the the choice to put these two characters together. It feels very deliberate, but given who Stallone was in this moment and who Link is sort of parodying and the scene also feels a lot of it feels very improvised even if it wasn't um which also like a lot of rocky has that very sort of loose the scenes go on too long (laughs) feeling to it um (laughs) and i don't know i just like them i like them together like there's not it's not a great scene and there's not really much to talk about um but 
uh, there's just something about putting Link and Stallone together that feels very right to me. And like the hair and the 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 three buttons open on the shirts, like they they match in a particular way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's also just very sweet and casual. Link is like, Sylv, can I? Are you decent? <laughs> it's like, no, but my folks were. That's really sweet. They're yeah. just like bros being pals. Yeah, I think also that for whatever reason, Jim Henson just felt like he had a really good rapport with Sylvester Stallone. So they end up doing a bunch of scenes together. Like, or at least they do this one and they do the gladiator scene as scene partners also, which uh, we have, we don't see often where Jim does multiple scenes opposite the guest star, not as Kermit. So that, that was just like an interesting thing to kind of, separate this episode in an unusual way yeah and like it's they're bros being bros but also like i don't think sylvester stallone likes link right like link is really trying to ingratiate himself and and stallone is like you're a buffoon <laughs> which which is also kind of a i mean it's not a new dynamic with link but it is it is fun to to see it play out <laughs> You know, it always surprises and delights me when we have a lot of unusual music to talk about in an episode with a non-musical guest. <laughs> and that's definitely the case here. I have not been this excited to talk about a song on this podcast in a long time. <laughs> all right, all right. Started, I Get into in our Slack. Christy, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> so this is a song called Hawaiian War Chant, which is sort of funny because the original melody and lyrics of it were written in the 1860s by a uh, Hawaiian prince, Leoleohoku. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And the original title of the song translated to We Too in the Spray. <laughs> so it it was actually like a like a love song. Like it was a song about a secret meeting between two lovers. So it became sort of a big band staple in uh, 1936 because a guy named Johnny Noble sort of tweaked the melody a little bit. And then um, some English lyrics are written by Ralph Freed and Johnny Noble's really interesting. He was a white guy, but he was a white guy from Hawaii. He was born in Hawaii, lived in Hawaii his whole life. He was a composer, band leader and arranger. And he uh, was one of the figures who really helped popularize Hawaiian music in the mainland U S in the thirties and forties. And uh, yeah, it sort of morphed into a Hawaiian war chant, but it was recorded by Tommy Dorsey in 1938, later by Spike Jones. But the reason that I'm excited to talk about it is because it is part of one of my favorite things on God's green earth, which is the enchanted tiki room at Disneyland. (laughs) (laughs) It is uh, in the show sung by the hanging baskets of flowers, AKA the clackiest sounding animatronics in the entire joint. (laughs) They're so loud. So loud. Uh, They're so (laughs) loud. 
it, it is the year 2022 and they they have not figured out how to make them unclacky and i think that's part of the charm you know they're not gonna you know waste their precious resources on making them unclacky but dear god <laughs> uh, anyway uh, but uh here, here's a, a cl- clip of what they're singing minus the clacking <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. The Enchanted Tiki Room is the very first live show I ever saw in my life. I mean, I guess live is <laughs> d- debatable because, uh, you know, it's animatronics. But yeah, I, w- I w- went to uh, Disney World for the first time when I was three. And I have this memory of like being in this room and the lights going down and then like the lights coming up and the birds being there. And it's just sort of my like first experience of a theater. It's very cool. But yeah, it actually uh, has appeared in another Disney property. If if this is sounding familiar to you and not from that, it may be from this. Wow! If you're hungry for a hunk of fat and juicy meat, eat my buddy Pumper here because he has a treat. Coming down a dine, on a Stacy Swine, all you have to do is get in line. Ah, you ate it? Yup, yup, yup. Awesome bacon! Yup, yup, yup. He's a big pig! Yup, yup. You can be a big pig too. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when it gets stuck in my head, I invariably am thinking, are you aching for something? Yep. <laughs> That's where it lives in my head. And because it was a, on a Muppet Hits album. So I know it from from that and from The Lion King. And I know the, the song, The Tiki Room. I did not realize that it was part of the Tiki Room show. I shouldn't be surprised, but... I'm I'm glad you're I'm happy for you being happy about this. <laughs> I I thoroughly enjoyed this Muppet performance, which I guess we should say is a bunch of pigs uh and, and birds. There are some penguins in Hawaii. Uh an animal is there and a monkey. Uh and uh, Annie Sue, and I don't want to objectify Annie Sue, but she seems to have really found her purpose as decoration. This is at least the second <laughs> time that she, her job has been to sit on a beach in a bikini and and sort of sing back up and look pretty. And she's very good at it. And I, I just enjoyed this so much. And I was like, is this as problematic as it seems? Should I not be enjoying this? And so I looked it up, uh, which I don't, I don't, you know, I usually wait for Christy. Um, and I, just, Christy said this, but I just want to read directly from the Wikipedia. The English title, therefore, has nothing to do with the song as it was originally written and performed in Hawaii, which, I don't know, seemed like really like shady to me, and I loved it. <laughs> um, but I was really happy to learn that they are singing actual words and not just, you know, vaguely ethnic nonsense, which is what I was afraid it was. And and I was pleased about that. Yeah. Oh, that is actually a relief. Yeah. 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 No, it's actual, it's actual Hawaiian, written by an actual Hawaiian, and... Uh, uh, it's and I, it's there, there's one when I was making the clip I did catch uh, some some not some like English turned into Hawaiian in the Muppet version something about like an automobile snuck in there but I think they're mostly <laughs> the real lyrics as far as I could tell. One of the Muppet birds that's singing is, is beaky in a way that makes it look like one of the the clacky flowers from the Tiki Room. <laughs> oh, that's even more exciting for you. <laughs> 
you know There's I made a gift, a- so you'll have that to enjoy. <laughs> and bring you comfort into the new year. There's a sound that happens. So there's a, a gorilla throwing coconuts and I like getting a little rewarding ding every time that uh, that he hits one of the penguins. But the, the throwing coconut sound is one that I it sounds to me at least like the same sound effect that we heard every time somebody dropped their pants in the Spike Milligan episode. Oh, and yeah, also when one of the Java Muppets like screams off. But maybe they're just very similar sounds. Anyway, this is a banger. <laughs> it was shocking time. to me to see this setup of the monkey throwing the coconuts and making the dinging sound uh, predating all of the various video games that I associate with monkeys throwing things like Donkey Kong or Congo Bongo. And I wonder, because of the dinging sound, is there like a carnival game that this is referencing that I'm not familiar with, that they're all kind of mutually referencing? Probably. I mean, I think monkeys throw things. Yeah, but it's just the way that it's, <laughs> the ding made it sound like a game, right? Like, right, right. No, I get it. I assumed that Donkey Kong was earlier, but yeah, it. No, it couldn't. The, have been. the arcade game originated in 1981, so maybe there was just something oh. in the zeitgeist. It's even earlier than I would have thought. Hey, oh, are you speaking Hawaiian? No, I bit my tongue. This is why we can't have nice things. Well, you can't win them all. You know what? Let, let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> I say I'll fight you. And I'll say I'll beat you. I'll say I'll beat you. And I say I'll eat you. Bite you. Beat you. Bite you. Eat you. Let's Let call the whole thing off. Yo! I know he's not saying I'll yeet you, but I enjoy thinking <laughs> that that's what he's saying. <laughs> that would be incredible. Lion yeeting Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> I mean, instead, Stallone yeets the lion. Yeah. <laughs> All while performing a Gershwin song. This is, in fact, a song called Let's Call the Whole Thing Off, written by George and Ira Gershwin for a movie called Shall We Dance from 1937. It was a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie. And they performed it, or part of it, at least, on on roller skates. So that's fun. And this is, uh, if you're playing the drinking game slash Muppeturgy Bingo, uh, number 34 on the AFI 100 Years 100 Songs list. I know it more from the When Harry Met Sally soundtrack. Louis Armstrong does it in the movie, and then Harry Connick Jr. did a version of it for the actual album. Very topical for me. I watch that movie every New Year's Eve, so I'll be watching that later today. Oh, I love that. Now I want to watch it later. This is such an omnipresent standard that I don't know that I could name like the version that I knew first or knew best, although the Harry Connick Jr. one was so popular at a formative time in my life that that certainly is up there. Which also means that I am far from a Gershwin purist, but like these alternate lyrics written for the Muppet show are, they're not great. uh, (laughs) Yeah. They're, they're unfortunate. (laughs) I did look up Quo Vadis and it does indeed mean where are you going? Or rather (laughs) it means where are you marching? Yeah. So it was surprising to me 
to hear Jim as the voice of the lion. And I assumed he was in the lion puppet, which was particularly weird because Rolf is upstairs as the emperor. Muppet Wiki claims that it's Dave Goals in the lion puppet, but it's definitely Jim's voice. So I don't know what that's about. I mean, it might've been a, a costume that didn't fit Jim. <laughs> it might've been the kind of physical activity that didn't fit Jim. <laughs> Because there's there's yeah, a lot but like, of Jim's a tall guy, yeah. Sylvester Stallone's a tall guy. It would sort of make sense to put them next to each other. It would. It's a cool puppet. There are a lot of colors happening in that mane. It's possible that he just was not enough of a dancer. Not that this is like such fantastic dancing, but even for that, you know. Sylvester Stallone is five ten, according to the internet, which means he's probably five seven. Just gonna put huh. that out there. <laughs> wow, well, he certainly has uh, tall guy energy. Because Google also says that Tom Cruise is 5'7", which, you know, so take at least two inches off mm-hmm, the ball. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I found it a little bit disturbing, speaking of Rolf, to have Rolf be the one who gives the thumbs down and then screaming, kill him, kill him, for the rest of the song. Yeah, the, that was the line that Zelda Rose was trying so hard to memorize. Was that <laughs> just the thumbs who down? Was he, who do we think he was rooting for? Was he rooting for the lion to kill Stallone? Everybody in this episode is in love with Stallone. I don't ah, think anybody wants to kill him. Fair enough. This was like yeah, what I, I was talking about up top. Like, this is not a great sketch, and it sort of goes on for too long, but I was so charmed by it, by like Stallone's willingness to just be doofy and <laughs> sing badly and like, yeah, I'll put on a gladiator costume because I know I look good in it and whatever. Like, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I, I just found it delightful. And if it had gone on for 10 seconds longer, I probably would have been out but it it worked for me <laughs> and they built this whole set and they built that whole lion they they clearly put a lot of thought and effort into the idea of this sketch and then it just kind of devolves into a song and dance and a fight and then it's over <laughs> i i appreciate where they're going with it i also looked up the the thumbs down thing i thought that it was the other way around that like thumbs down means let him live and thumbs up means the other way but apparently it's thumbs up means kill him and a closed fist with a hidden thumb means don't kill him i don't know shocked shocked that the muppet show did not do deep historical research (laughs) (laughs) i mean i just read the first result on the internet i didn't do deep historical research either but i mean maybe that's why they needed the lines kill him just to just to clarify, in case anybody was like, wait, <laughs> I have some historical context. Well, I always heard that music can soothe the savage beast. Now I believe it. Yeah, good thing the lion learned to sing. Stallone would have killed him. <laughs> so we get some legitimately great musicianship in the UK spot this week. <laughs> oh, sweet and tender, let it be Oh, let it be good to me. I am so awfully misunderstood. Oh, let it be good, be good to me. It's a double dose of Gershwin. Oh, it's so good. Uh, so this is a song called Oh Lady Be Good from a musical called Lady Be Good from 1924. 
the songs were by the Gershwins, and uh, the book of the musical was written by Guy Bolton and Fred Thompson. It was a musical about a brother and sister who are broke and trying to help each other out. And it uh, was the first Broadway musical with songs by the Gershwins, and it starred real-life brother and sister Fred and Adele Astaire. And they did it both on Broadway and on the West End a couple years later. There's a 1941 movie musical also called Lady Be Good, which does not really bear any relationship to the stage musical, except that it does have this song as a centerpiece where Eleanor Powell does just an absolutely incredible tap dance to it. So if that's your kind of thing, I recommend, if not necessarily seeking out the film, at least seeking out that number, which I'm sure you can find on YouTube, probably in our show notes. I got to say, it's really refreshing to just get to hear these guys play without being interrupted by a, you know, laser pointer or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're rocking out. I love it. We should probably mention it's Floyd singing, uh, accompanied by Dr. Teeth and Zoot. They make such a good jazz combo. It's sort of funny that they're, you know, primarily known as kind of a funk rock band because this was really their wheelhouse. Yeah, but they contain multitudes. It's true. Speaking of containing multitudes, apparently so does Beauregard. (laughs) (laughs) It's the William Tell Overture, or a piece of it. Anyway, uh, very, very, very famous piece of music. Uh, It is a piece, actually, of... The much longer overture to the opera William Tell, uh, which was the, the last of uh, Joaquino Rossini's 39 operas. It was written in 1829. Shout out to the public domain. And, you know, we could e- very easily turn into a William Tell overture podcast, <laughs> but we won't. Uh, this piece of music uh, is known mostly from cartoons and from being the theme to the Lone Ranger. It's used a lot as like horse riding music. It was also used more recently as this. Hi-ho, do you know the names of the U.S. residents who then became the presidents and got a view from the White House Lou of Pennsylvania Avenue. George Washington was the first you see. He once chopped down a cherry tree. President number two would be John Adams and then number three. Tom Jefferson stayed up to write a declaration late at night. So he and his wife had a great big fight and she made him sleep on the couch all night. That's the Animaniacs, for those of you who are (laughs) not of my specific age. You know, bless the cartoons of the 90s for trying to teach us mildly useless trivia. <laughs> we owe them so much. So much. I wonder if the first place that I heard this was the Muppets Take Manhattan with the chickens oh. doing their impression of Tony Bennett singing the William Tell Overture. Yeah. Hmm. So is stopped in the wings by Sam who informs him, you know, you can't go out there. That's the stage. And he's like, oh no, I'm, I'm in this. And what it is, is he is uh, the, the bearer of the apple that is getting shot appropriately, as that's part of the William Tell story. That's all I know about the William Tell story. Have any of you ever actually seen William Tell? No. Nope. Nope. I mean, not the opera, anyway. 
But I do appreciate that the cellist is the one who fires at Bo, because who needs an arrow when you already have a bow? A bow for Bo. The the um the arrow is actually the the bow of the cello, and is shot by the cello, like the strings of the cello, as if it were a bow. The other kind of bow. This is very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure the cello doesn't last beyond this this sketch. Uh, yeah, and it's very cute. Uh, it's very funny. But uh, once you know that, I mean, this is probably the kind of thing you wouldn't notice uh, uh, viewing it as a normal person. Um, but once you know that, when you watch it again, um, you can see that that that's like that's how it's set up the entire time. Like they didn't they didn't um, even though they cut from the orchestra to uh, to Beauregard in between, they didn't do two setups. The cello is set up like a bow and arrow the entire time, the, the entire scene. Uh, which kind of bothered me that they, I'm sure they were just, you know, short on time and couldn't, uh, couldn't reorient the prop. Or I didn't the catch it. Uh, yeah, I, I only caught it on my, I only caught it on my, uh, my second time through when I was uh, making the gifts. But yeah, it's also a cute bit of business that that's how it works. Also, it's like a four person orchestra. <laughs> with animal for some yeah, reason. With animal on drums. It's like, I, I didn't understand why it was all whatnots and then animal. Like we have an orchestra. <laughs> Poor trumpet girl. Alas. Uh, I just checked. It is literally, it is four whatnots and animal. So a, a, a five person <laughs> orchestra. <laughs> or a five Muppet orchestra. Our closing number is a trip to the, the music hall with Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Why not? And I thought she's happier here in Dresden. And to have people say, when seen, she's only a bird in a gilded cage. A beautiful sight to see, sight to see. And there she's passing, she's not what she seems to be. So this is a song called A Bird in a Gilded Cage that was written by Arthur J. Lamb and Harry Von Tilzer. If you've been paying really close attention, the the name Arthur J. Lamb might sound familiar to you uh, because he also wrote the lyrics for The Bird on Nellie's Hat from the Gilder Radner episode. Wow. What was the thing with birds? Yeah, so many birds, so little time. Uh, (laughs) And... This was one of the most popular songs of 1900. Shout out to the public domain yet again. Uh, it uh, reportedly sold more than 2 million copies of sheet music, making it, I think, the Despacito of 1900. <laughs> <laughs> if you had held a gun to my head and said, have we already heard a song called A Bird in a Gilded Gage on The Muppet Show? I'm not sure that I would have been able to tell you the right answer. Like... Yeah. Like it, like in your sort of imaginary music hall song title generator, like this is going to be one of the most common answers. This one I feel like is famous enough that like I I've heard the song. Like I know this chorus outside of the Muppet show, I think. I, I feel like it's definitely something that they play at Disneyland somewhere. If you truly hate yourself, uh you can find one of the original wax cylinder recordings of this on YouTube. I I, I was able to locate the Steve Porter rendition. It's real funky. Uh, I mean, wax cylinder recordings are 
weird and scratchy anyway, but this one is, it's a little funky. Uh, (laughs) uh, But the thing that I love about this is Stallone and all of the Muppets with him are all dressed in like, sort of like barbershop quartet ish, like turn of the century, uh, gay nineties outfits. Like they're wearing striped shirts and, you know, like bow ties and vests and bowler hats and sleeve garters. I didn't know that that was what they were called, but uh, they're all wearing pink sleeve garters. Well, clearly you had a different junior high show choir director than I did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they were part of our uniform. Sorry, that was actually, I think, our high school show choir uniform involved uh, teal sequined sleeve garters. Yeah, I I just didn't know that they were a thing. I mean, like, I'd seen them out in the world, but, like, I you know, I was Googling, like, you know, 1890s pink armbands, and Google's like, what? <laughs> and finally, I, I was able to, you know, narrow it down. It was like, it's like, barbershop quartet armband. It's like, <laughs> Wikipedia's like, a sleeve garter is a blah, 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 blah. They're apparently still used by... Uh, card dealers at casinos uh, huh. to demonstrate that they do not have anything up their sleeves. Literally. <laughs> Did you happen to find out why they exist? I, I mean, partially uh, to enable easier movement because the sleeves were quite blousy at the time. Yeah. Which is you, like, why, why not? You know, just make the sleeves smaller. But they didn't have tailors; they just had big scrunchies. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these in particular really look like scrunchies. The whole scene kind of looks like one of the still pictures from the uh, title sequence from Cheers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but with more bowler hats and sleeve cutters. Yeah. To follow up on an earlier comment, Burden and Gilded Cage did in fact appear at Disneyland as part of the America Sings attraction, which I don't think I ever saw. I think it was already... No, it's way before any of our time. Yeah. Uh, but the character who performed it is in fact a chicken inside a Gilded Cage. Uh, and now, at least for another uh, couple weeks, appears in Splash Mountain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is fun. E- even if Stallone, you know, Rex Harrison's most of it. <laughs> He does a decent job given the song. And when he wants to start sort of belting, he's got a respectable bass belt. Yeah. He would go on to continue to find opportunities to sing throughout his career, including co-starring with Dolly Parton in the film Rhinestone, where he does a whole song on the soundtrack and does a pretty good job with it. Neat. Yeah, I dug it. (laughs) They're having a good time. They're having such a good time that they keep this scene up over the outro Kermit walks on while they're all still weeping over the bird in a gilded cage. Yeah. Apparently this song was a famous weepy song, which I don't understand. I don't think it's that sad. <laughs> well, you try spending some time in a gilded cage. I mean, they're, yeah. they're sad Cause it's a, it's a metaphor, right? They're sad about the, the girl. Yeah. It's they're very, sad it's about very the- green finch and Lennepard, right? Yep. Yeah. It's all these dudes who are sad about, the the lady's fate, yeah, lady rich, yeah. It just I don't know, I don't know. Statler and Waldorf get into it also. They're all just blowing their noses. It's so sad. Never mind that jazz. Listen, Turkey, 
What? And get out of show business? All right. So speaking of show business, let's talk about Otto, the automatic entertainer, a robot presented with little to no context by Professor Albert Flan, also appearing with little to no context. Say, aren't you Otto, the six million dollar funny man? Shake. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't get a lot for $6 million these days. <laughs> yeah, a topical humor there for the grown-ups. <laughs> so that's Professor Albert Flan and Otto, the automatic entertainer. Even though there is a Fozzie spot later on in this episode, Fozzie is relegated to doing a magic act because apparently comedians are being replaced by robots. <laughs> Not to say that this robot is good at comedy, because... Otto attempts to tell a joke and then short circuits and explodes. This will be a whole plot later on of the the robot entertainer who replaces the cast. So I guess they were trying this out, but badly. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the robot is a fun enough gag, but this Professor Albert Flan is just... <laughs> Totally intolerable. He's got this used car salesman thing going on. And I don't know if I would have enjoyed comedy being automated more if it were being automated by Bunsen and Muppet Labs. I did wonder why Bunsen was not the choice for this. It just seemed like an obvious Bunsen moment. Yeah. And they don't explain who Professor Albert Flan is. Kermit just kind of introduces him, which is fine. That's very Muppet show. I just don't like his persona because he's also clearly got some comedic ambitions of his own. (laughs) Like he wants Otto to be the star, but he also wants to be the star. It made me wonder if he was born too soon and started too late. I appreciate his outfit. I mean, it's a terrible outfit, but it's a, it's a very (laughs) deliberate, it's a very deliberate, (laughs) terrible outfit. And like, it's not just that it's ugly. It's also um, like the pants are too high, right? Like the the costume department's doing some really nice work this week. In general, both human and Muppet. And Otto is wearing a, 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 a bow tie. Uh, he's a robot, so he's not wearing any other clothes. He's wearing a bow tie that's made of the same fabric as Albert's uh, suit, which is a nice touch. Albert also has teeth. He's got like the same creepy teeth as the eggplant, <laughs> which I do not appreciate. <laughs> some really bad hair. Like for as much as I like the groupies, I hate the look of Albert, which I think is deliberate. He, you're, he's meant to be off-putting. Um, yeah, his eyes are a little crossed. I'm I'm looking at the gif right now, which I shouldn't do. I because sh- not only is it off uh, unsettling, but it is like you know looping. So I'm going to put that away. But um, yeah, he's a uh, he's not um, appealing, Albert. Yeah, you're right. Somebody put a lot of careful detail work into ensuring that this is a very specific character that you will find annoying. Yeah. But that being said, I found Otto hugely appealing. I'm <laughs> I'm in the tank for Otto. I, I can't explain it. I love him. I, 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 this gag works for me. And maybe it's it's because of the incredibly, you know, topical in this moment in time debate about the use of AI. Like, did you guys see that New York Times thing that was like, can you spot the difference between an essay written by fourth grader and an essay written by AI? Oh no, and now I don't want to. Yeah, it's it's a little bit disturbing. I, I I pride myself at being very good at it. 
Um, and then I got to the end and they progressively got harder. And then like the last few, I definitely could not tell the difference. And I was like, oh no, cool. I've read cool, some cool. very funny. <laughs> yeah. I've read some very funny Seinfeld scripts written by the AI. Like, it, oh yeah. My, fa- my favorite is the Olive Garden commercial that was written by AI that ended with, oh, when you're here, you're here. Um, <laughs> I. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if anyone's tried a Muppet Show script yet. We should do that. I have wondered oh. about that, and I'm afraid to try it. Anyway, Otto, as robots go, pretty yeah. cute. It's a cute puppet, and it's not the same puppet who will show up later. I think it's the Dudley Moore episode. Uh, at least according to Muppet Wiki, this is a one-off. Um, but I think I think that puppet's pretty cute too. They they do good robot puppets. Yeah, if both Otto and Albert Fland only appear in this episode. Which is kind of surprising because clearly a lot of work went into them. Albert Flan going in the same dubious uh, Hall of Fame as Clive Coenga. <laughs> <laughs> Alas. Oh. So later on in the show, Fozzie comes on to do his bit, which is not comedy. He's doing a sawing a lady in half act, uh, but he lacks a lady. So Kermit finds him a robot. It's Otto in a wig. I am dicing with death out here, Kermit. Don't worry, it's okay. I found you a lady. You did? Is she beautiful? No, but she's willing. Good enough. That's uncomfortable for you. <sighs> yeah, that's clearly a repurposed yeah. sex joke, and I do not like it. Nope. Absolutely yeah. not. This gets more uncomfortable, or at least it continues to be uncomfortable. Because <laughs> Fozzie puts the robot in the box and starts to saw through the box. While Otto says mama repeatedly. <laughs> yeah, it's really disturbing. Yeah. And then you see Professor Albert Flan in the wings saying, not the main power cables, as Fozzie saws through the robot, gets electrocuted, which is a, a cool video effect. Uh, and then Fozzie just keels over. So I guess that's it for Fozzie. You can survive electrocution. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, Fozzie will be back. Otto will not, so... Alas. Uh, what did you think? Shocking. <laughs> yes, but was it funny? Of course not. That'd really be shocking. <laughs> I enjoy Statler and Waldorf. Anyway, Veterinarian's Hospital. The, the patient is a pig from the opening Hawaiian number, and the vet's hospital staff is hamming it up. Where's he from? Hawaii. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? <laughs> oh, Dr. Bob, that is the oldest joke since they renamed the islands. What were they called before? Sandwich. No, thanks. I might get crumbs on the patient. <laughs> Dr. Bob, the patient was in the opening Hawaiian number. Why wasn't I in that number? I can do the hula. I've seen you do the hula. You're no great shakes. <laughs> I think a patient misses Hawaii. He's homesick. How can he be homesick when he's right here sick? <laughs> some of these jokes are fun, and some of them aren't jokes. They do this napple, like they want you to say pineapple, but that's not a joke. I don't know. That was a weird one. Some some of these are a bit of a stretch. Really? Uh, a veterinarian's hospital? But even more than usual, <laughs> I would argue. Um, it is cute that the patient is willing to play along. We must have used every dumb Hawaiian joke in the book. <laughs> hey, Hawaiians aren't dumb. You'll be hearing from my friends on No Man. No Man? Where is that? 
No man is an island. <laughs> I like the piggy says he fell for it. I also like the suggestion that this pig is like is also a guest star. Like that he's an actual Hawaiian pig who's like just just here for this episode. Appreciate that. Yeah. Was it was the sandwich thing a joke? They renamed the islands they used to be sandwich? No, that's real. The sandwich islands were what the British called them. Oh. Because, you know, colonization. Uh, we should talk about uh, how Kermit closes the episode, because I fully gasped. <laughs> we'll see you next time on the Muppet Show. You've been a wonderful <laughs> I want to leave every room now saying you've been a wonderful laugh track. <laughs> well done. And yeah, a little shocking. Well, they say all good things come to an end. What's that got to do with this show? <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppetergy. Join us in two weeks for a big clucking discussion of the Roger Miller episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on whatever social media still exists at this point at Muppetergy, or on the web at Muppetergy.com, where you can find our merch store for all your t-shirt, notebook, and sticker needs. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Yeah. I don't know if you guys are able to hear <laughs> in the building across from me, like my fire escape looks out on somebody else's fire escape. And there is a dude who does pull-ups. This is not, not for the podcast, but I don't know if this is going to be a distracting sound of a guy just like grunting in rhythm. Every time he does a pull-up? No. Okay.